Hello and welcome to the Alone Together podcast. I'm Matt Millard speaking to you from Birmingham. And I'm Dan McLaughlin reporting from Salford. On today's episode, we are taking a look at the return to universities for students. What are their concerns about the new academic year? What will lectures look like under social distancing? And what do they feel needs to be done to support them? Coming up on today's episode. Um, COVID safe implies that they can leave their homes, their support bubbles, their family, their friends and their networks, everything they've known to move to a new city and have that full experience. And that is not the case. You know, we've heard quite a lot, particularly from students who've been uh, kind of trapped in their accommodation um, in a certain Manchester university, which I won't name, um, uh, because of the virus and have been questioning, you know, why, why am I paying all this money for, for online lectures? The assumption seems to be that online is worth less. And I'm hoping that now that more students are experiencing online, that they will come to see this whole debate in a very different way. We also asked students from a number of universities to describe their thoughts and feelings about their current situation. It is the return to university, but not as we know it. And this is what they had to say. Hi, my name is Ellie. I'm a third year Geography, Society and Environment student at Harriet Watch, and I'm actually really enjoying online teaching. I feel a lot more efficient I save a lot of time not commuting to university and a lot of money not buying coffee. I don't think there is a better time to be studying. You can't really do anything else. Hi, I'm Lauren and I study in Edinburgh and I'm in my third year of uni. I find the uni taking an online approach definitely has its upsides and downsides. I think it's more convenient that you can log on to your laptop and watch your lecture from home. However, I do miss the social aspect and being able to go into uni, especially in terms of sport. I play basketball and the social events this year can't really take place because of COVID. I also joined tennis this year and it's the same thing, they can't take place, which definitely makes it harder to meet new people and speak to people out with the training. So I'm a student studying at home. I found it really isolating as I'm unable to interact with other students and start to build up my network. I started the academic term on the 28th of September. I've not had a lecture yet, in person or online, but I know over the next coming weeks, Newcastle University is offering a different range of learning, whether it be Q&A sessions, pre-recorded lectures, Zoom Teams calls, which really, this sort of learning has increased the student's ability to work independently, to be able to fit it around your own schedule but for first-year students, and I am a first-year student myself, it is very overwhelming and that in-person teaching is needed to be able to guide you on the right path and to help you to settle into university life. The move, of course, to online learning is wise, especially with the increased COVID cases we're seeing amongst students. It would be irresponsible to have all learning in person for the time being. Hi, my name's Georgia Henderson and I'm at Newcastle University and as it's all mostly online I feel that we probably should not be paying the full nine grand a year for this tuition as we're not going to use the full university's resources and I think it the way they are treating students and is almost blaming them for perhaps a second wave is not fair. Well some interesting thoughts though you, you can't help but feel sorry for students at the moment can't you Matt? Well, exactly that, Dan. Students are number one, aren't they? At a university. That's the you know, the whole purpose is for the for the well being of the student, for them to learn, for them to 
to develop as as human beings and you can't help but feel for them in, in this situation and and I struggle to know what the answer is really and as as well as that as you you will hear within the interviews in this episode as well you can't help but feel for the universities themselves and, and in particular the lecturers who have had to adapt their ways of working their ways of teaching and all and doing so in such a small time frame it's the first years i i feel really sorry for because you know also, university at the end of the day is to get that piece of paper at the end of it, is to, to get is that, to get that degree. But also, it is about the, that life experience, meeting new people from different parts of the country or different parts of the world, you know, going out, just having fun, being part of these societies, making new friends, having making new memories. Well, you can't really do a lot of making new memories when you're stuck in accommodation for a couple of months. So it's the freshest I really feel sorry for. When else do you get the opportunity in, in, in life to, to meet so many different people from so many different backgrounds and so many different places from around the UK? But the, that whole concept, if you think about it, in, in the current coronavirus situation is just alarm bells everywhere, isn't it? As we're, as we're told to, to not venture too far and not mingle with, with people outside of our households if we can help it and so on. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a very strange situation. We'll hear more um, in the interviews of this episode. One of those students affected is Joshua Williams. He's a postgraduate student at the University of Birmingham and he's also the ex-president of the University of Birmingham's Students' Union, which is also known as the Guild of Students. I spoke to Joshua to get a deeper perspective on the challenges that students are now facing and what they are missing out on under the coronavirus restrictions. He argues that students are acting as guinea pigs upon their return to university. So universities have opened their doors again. Governments have, have deemed it safe now for them to reopen, although we're already seeing universities across the country having to introduce quarantines and extra restrictions. So universities um, are now even being labelled expensive prisons, which is quite a... Uh, it's quite a, quite a serious term. Do you think? Do you think it was the right thing to do for universities to open um, as they have done and halls of residence whilst the COVID nineteen pandemic is still with us? I must admit, it's not necessarily about whether it was the right thing, but it was. Did they need to? Um, universities have constantly said throughout this pandemic that they are now COVID safe to return students for the um, current semester, and that doesn't mean that they are completely safe. That doesn't mean that students will have the same opportunities and the same experiences that they were promised. Um, COVID safe implies that they can leave their homes, their support bubbles, their family, their friends and their networks, everything they've known to move to a new city and have that full experience. And that is not the case. Um, we're seeing now as well, universities are pushing to move online, but UCU and NUS as two massive, uh, massive bodies of unions have been pushing for this all throughout the pandemic, but yet the government haven't taken this seriously. And now we're seeing students being used as cash cows. We see universities such as UEA, where they're um, charging students over £200 for two weeks of isolation food. We're seeing universities across the country that have invited students down, promising them a good time and all of the opportunities that should have been provided for them as a university. And instead, they are locked in accommodations that are fast becoming prisons, definitely expensive prisons as well, may I add, yeah. um, paying yeah. through their nose for a service that does no longer exist. It's, it's an awkward balance, I find, because it's... Um universities have been told to reopen or, 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 or it's possible for them to reopen, but then how, you know, how much restriction do you have to put in to make it a safe place and then also be able to function? Oh, absolutely. Um, universities 
moved online um, during the start of lockdown. It would have been kind of the end of the last ac academic year. We, we saw remote lectures being introduced and a no time within university campus uh, being allowed. Unis did adapt quickly. You have to feel for the university somewhat. They, they, obviously, this, this came out of nowhere for, for all of us and they had to react. So did what they could within the guidelines. But many students now say they feel like they you know, have not got their money's worth and, and will continue to not get their money's worth. We've even see, seen campaigners now demanding refunds uh, for students. Just wondered your thoughts on this. Again, I think this question's twofold. Um, I think you have to look at it from a student's perspective and a university perspective as well. Um, universities have, up to recently, been run like businesses. They are to make profit. Um, so having students back and demanding full tuition fees is essential for them to continue. We've already seen the government deny um, any aid towards bailouts of them. And the only kind of commitment they made earlier this year was that they would do bailouts to some universities as long as they provided a commitment to free speech, which in my opinion is just trying to um, pass the blame onto some form of culture war. And it's just a bit strange. Mm -hmm. um, so I can understand why universities are still asking for full tuition fees because they are for profit. However, at the student side, um, we've seen that remote lectures aren't necessarily working to the best capa um, capacity that they were promised and expected. Um, disabled students, for example, have been pushing and lobbying this for years, and it's finally happened. So it's shown that all along universities have had the capacity and the ability to be able to do it, but they've chosen not to. So remote working is something that is essential for the continuation of universities and to ensure that they are inclusive. However, I worked um, at the well, I worked at my students' union last year, and I was working very close with university. Um, to be able to get this content online, to be able to make sure that students were still able to learn, still able to graduate. But universities are in chaos. They are trying to do something in a very short turnaround time that has never been done before. And students this year are very much a guinea pig. So regardless of whether you're at a post-94 a post institution, a Russell Group University, you are a guinea pig. And we see, say, the Open University, for example, who is established in this field, in remote working, in um, creating and pushing content online, as they have been doing throughout their whole kind of um, journey, mm -hmm. they charge £6,192 per year. Most students are paying £9,250 at minimum for a subpar service compared to that. And I think that begs the question, realistically, they're not getting the service that they are paying for. Um, so I would support the call for some form of reimbursement for students um, and we need to really be able to refine the service that we're offering, but also the promises that we're making students. Students aren't, students aren't dumb. All it takes is a bit of honesty. But yet mm -hmm. all throughout summer, universities have consistently told students that they will have a high level of bimodal teaching, that they will have opportunities to make new friends, to be able to join societies and sports clubs and have that campus experience. And that has been missold to them. That is basic contract law. Um, again, go back to the open university point, they are offering a service that is very transparent, very open, very honest. Um, and for £6,192 per year, they are established in this. Modern universities are not. Do you think it's um, an element of the unknown that maybe universities, like most of us, um, you know, we, we receive new, new guidelines almost on a weekly basis, it seems, depending on, on how the pandemic is going. Um, do you think that that has something to do it do with it, where the universities don't know what they may be able to do in in say a few months' time. So they are kind of having to almost um, promise and and then retract afterwards. I must say, when I do critique universities and the HE sector as a whole, I try to do it as a constructive or critical friend. 
because I do understand the really precarious situation that the whole sector is in at the moment. Um, universities have been thrown into chaos and thrown under the bus a lot by government over the past couple of months, be it the A-level fiasco, be it students coming back. The blame is constantly being put, pushed from government over to universities because the government is unwilling to actually commit to helping, to be completely honest. That's the simplest term that I can use for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, universities do know that it's an unstable period, that it is uncertain. And with the uncertainty means that you can't be promising the same things that you were promising all in all of these previous years, for this year in particular, knowing full well that there was a lack of government support and a lack of knowledge about what is going to happen day to day, to be completely honest. We've got academics and support staff working around the clock to try to make things a little bit better. But it's an impossible situation. And there's no one cause of the blame other than government, I would say. Um, but at the same time, we need to make sure that all actors within this kind of um, sector are working to their best for the benefit of students who are the consumer in this situation. Now, we move into this new academic year. As we said, we've seen universities reopen. There seems to be a general theme across universities where there's limited time on campus and, and a move to a more online way of working in the same way that many of us as professionals have now had to work remotely, me included. Um, you know, this, this podcast is being brought to you from, from my home and, and our other hosts' homes across the UK. Um, do, do you see this remote way of working as, as, a, as a positive or a negative uh, given the current situation? Or do you think that students uh, may be missing out on a large aspect of uni life? I know for me personally, I went to university. Uh, a huge part of that was was socialising and, and, you know, mingling and mixing and learning with other people from all walks of life from, from across the country and from overseas. I think it's twofold, to be honest. I think it is positive in the sense of the corporate world and the kind of university world as well is very, very consuming So being able to work four days a week, for example, work on reduced hours or work in a close proximity to your family so you're not missing out on that quality time with them can only be seen as a positive. However, on the flip side, our homes have now become our workspaces and there's not really a disconnection between them. And when we put that specifically towards students, universities are time to be able to learn who you are as a person, to be able to grow, to be able to have social development opportunities. And as you said, meet people from all walks of life. And that has been completely bulldozed and wiped away. And instead, to go back to um, what we spoke about earlier, students are now locked in accommodation with the same group of people that they'll have to stay with throughout this entire, at least six months, but it could be the entire of their entirety of their first year. Mm-hmm. And I do sympathise because when it comes to queer students or those that are care leavers or estranged students, those that have finally been able to gain some form of independence and to be able to begin the next chapter in their lives, that freedom has been taken away from them. And to kind of build on top of that, I think we are approaching a student mental health crisis, um, not only because of the circumstances that they find themselves in, but because of the utter lack of support and the constant condemnation by media and government alike. It's a really lonely and isolating time to be a student, and it's made even more isolating due to the fact that everything is remote. Mm-hmm. At, a, at a risk of um, <laughs> making, making this, uh, this interview even more negative, we have to look forward as well and, and at life after university. And, and as we know, we, we've seen lots of redundancies across certain sectors due to the pandemic. Um, is there a concern around job prospects for students that maybe finished last year or would be looking to finish this year? And do you think the government should or could offer something more to help these graduates when it comes to finding work? I would love to be positive, but I'm, I must be negative again. 
Um, we are seeing a massive crisis of student graduates not being able to seek meaningful employment. Um, and I would hope that the government would be able to provide some support in this in job creation. However, as we've seen from Rishi Sunak's um, recent announcement, it's about job develop, um, job training once again, employment training skills. How are you supposed to be trained for a job that does not exist? Um, there needs to be a push by government to create jobs, not training for jobs that do not exist. However, on a positive note, we've already seen students and young people go above and beyond throughout this global pandemic, and I can see them still doing that. Um, we've seen the National Union of Students, for example, and student officers all around the country constantly fighting to better the lives of students on their campuses. We've seen young people working in the retail sector, in the hospitality sector, during the Help Out Eat Out scheme, for example, constantly trying to put themselves realistically in harm's way to be of contribution to society. Yep. We see young people campaigning, getting involved in activism, making their voices heard, trying to shape something better. And realistically, if the government won't support um, the creation of jobs, I feel like young people are carving their own way and their own path, and that's something to be celebrated. I do feel for, for students, having been a student myself at university and, and, and knowing the struggles of, of graduating, especially in, in certain sectors where there's a lot of, a lot of working for free and, and doing what you can here and there until it forms into a career. So hopefully things will pick up um, moving forward. It's, thank you for joining us, Joshua. Is there anything else that you, that you wanted to add or, or discuss on, on this topic? I think the last thing that I just want to say is to any young people or any students listening, um, I myself am a young person, so it might sound a bit condescending, but I do want to say it anyway. I just want to say that we do see you, we do hear you, and we are going to continue to fight for you. Um, we risk creating a lost generation of young people and students in particular. Um, and it seems like constantly it's an uphill battle with government condemning young people and students, the media doing the same, some key figures, politicians, um, personalities doing exactly that. But it's young people that missed out on their graduations, on their end-of-year proms, being able to say goodbye to their friends when they move to their next school, while simultaneously worrying about their grandparents and their, um, their parents, their families, still putting themselves in harm's way, volunteering, um, getting involved in all these different sectors. And I think we're going to look back on this quite distastefully at the way that we've treated young people, because realistically, they're the ones that are trying to keep everything going right now, whilst making so many sacrifices. And we do see you, we do hear you, and we do appreciate everything that you've done and continue to do. And I think it's up to each of us, young people and um, those throughout our society alike, to really rally behind young people now and try to make something better for them in the years to come. That was my chat with postgraduate student Joshua Williams. Joshua is the ex-president of the University of Birmingham's Student Union. Uh, thanks, Matt. Now, we are in the midst of Journalism Matters Week, which is an annual campaign that celebrates the important role that journalism plays in our society. Whether that's local newspapers reporting on the integral issues in their patch, um, national newspapers and publications launching into investigations in the public interest, or even your humble podcast that is starting conversations on a diverse range of topics. Now, as the COVID-19 pandemic has proven, journalism matters more than ever, as we, we report on the complex stories that affect our everyday lives. So at Laudable, we are proud to play our part in reporting the important issues for our listeners. Um, what have been your highlights in 2020, Matt? Well, I think an obvious one for for me and 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 for both of us is is this alone together podcast. It's a um, 
a podcast that w- that was it was thought of from a very natural place. We were we were both talking and saying we were in need of of some positive community stories um, rather than the especially near the start of the the lockdown and the pandemic. It was endless doom and gloom, and we yeah we really wanted to highlight and share some positivity and. And, you know, along came the Alone Together podcast and it's been an absolute joy to produce and, and be part of the show um, ever since. You know, we've spoke to so many amazing and incredible people and been, been able to share their stories. What about yourself, Dan? No, I, I have to absolutely second that. Um, Alone Together, particularly the positive community stories, is, is, um, it's done me a world of good listening to them. It's given me a bit more sort of hope and joy and it's hearing those voices that you might not necessarily hear elsewhere um we've got many podcasts we've got so many podcasts in our repertoire it's, it's hard to sort of and uh, digest it it's um i think the the black lives podcast we've just launched which we'll be talking about um towards the end of this episode um is a great achievement and hopefully will continue to be a great achievement um even things like the echoes menopods which is the podcast that um, tackles puberty's evil older sister, the menopause. Now, I'm not meant to be the target audience for it. I'm a 26-year-old man. I'm not going to get brain fog or hot flushes or any other symptoms of the menopause, but I will know women in my life that are going to get it or are going through it. And I think as a, it's a witty podcast, firstly, but as an educational podcast, I think... It's an excellent piece of journalism because it's get you know educating someone like me, and also the the, the women over forty five who will experience the menopause. I think it's a, a great piece of work from Susan Lee and Don Collinson. Amazing stuff! And if you want to read more about journalism matters week and laudable podcasts, don't forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter at laudable.substack.com. The link will be in the bio of this episode. Yes, indeed. Now, the newsletter gives a behind-the-scenes look at our wonderful podcast, so do give it a look. Now, next, we return to the issues affecting universities upon their return for the new academic year. The COVID-19 pandemic and the restrictions it brings has brought a change to how academics deliver their lectures. I spoke to Dr. Carol O'Reilly, Senior Lecturer in Media and Cultural Studies at the University of Salford, who has embraced the change and wants to avoid, in her words, death by PowerPoint. What challenges have you faced uh, delivering these lectures online? Uh, Well, I guess the major challenge, and this probably applied to everybody, was time. Um, Trying to get as much prepped beforehand as possible during the summer period, which was obviously kind of useful, but meant you couldn't do other things. But then again, we were in a pandemic, so there wasn't much else you could do. So yeah, time was of the essence, really. And particularly if you're kind of control freak perfectionist like me, nothing's ever as good as you really want it to be. So I kept going back into it all the time and kind of checking it and adding bits and pieces. It was also, I guess, and again, I I suppose this applies to everybody in this situation, was the tech, learning the new tech. Now, luckily, unlike many other institutions, we stuck with the tech that we already had, which is something called Blackboard. So they just upgraded actual Blackboard to a a kind of platform that um, invites online learning a bit more than the other one that we had. But the basics of it were familiar. Um, So that wasn't actually too bad. And I know many colleagues in other institutions 
had completely new platforms kind of foisted on them about the last minute. And obviously that would have been more difficult for them. So I guess time and technology, two T's, um, were probably the two major kind of barriers for me. Um, before this interview, we, we, we were chatting and um, the phrase death by PowerPoint yeah. came up. <laughs> um, how, how have you managed to avoid death by PowerPoints for the students? Um, obviously, everybody has a choice. This new kind of platform allows people to still use PowerPoint so that you can use a uh, a narrated PowerPoint, a PowerPoint where you essentially talk over the top of it. Um, so you can do that. But actually, that felt not right to me. That's, first of all, it's not really proper online learning. And second of all, the system that we had, the Blackboard Ultra, allows you to just do so much more. So I was very keen and I kind of jumped at the opportunity to abandon PowerPoint altogether, um, partly because the people who trained us over the summer kind of gently suggested to howls of horror that maybe PowerPoint is not the best sort of system to do online learning. But also during the summer, I actually took an online course myself just to see what it would be like to learn online from the point of a student, because I was really trying to get my head around how is it different to kind of teach people face to face as opposed to teaching them online. And I figured that one of the best ways to do that was to become a student myself. So I undertook one of those free short courses, online courses from the University of Reading, which was actually really interesting. And coincidentally, they, I think, had been using the same Blackboard Ultra system. So I got to see how they kind of mixed text with videos, with links, with activities, and kind of got some sense. And I really, really wanted to try that. So I kind of became quite evangelistic about it and decided, just made the decision that I was going to ditch PowerPoint. And to be honest, that was something that I'd been thinking about for years myself as a teacher and as a lecturer. You know, this sense of standing in front of 120, 130 students in a large lecture hall while I talk over PowerPoint slides is frankly, it doesn't feel much like education. It doesn't really help me. It certainly doesn't help a lot of the students. It's not a great learning environment overall. So given the opportunity to kind of ditch that and run away from it, I kind of embraced it really. Um, and I'm really glad I did. You know, I know a lot of people were kind of looking askance at me, but I, I felt quite strongly myself that here was an opportunity to give a better learning experience to these students than I could have done otherwise. So I just decided to go for it really. So describe a, a lecture now. Uh, okay. You've described what it was before, but what is it now? Yeah. Um, well, we made the decision that for the lectures from my modules, we would deliver those what they call asynchronously. So students access them in their own time and I, I am not present while they're doing it. So essentially a student can go through a lecture which lasts about the same time as a normal face-to-face -face lecture. It's now broken down into bite-sized chunks. Um, so they can access it anytime they like. They can go back over things much easily. They can um, digest it uh, according to how they learn as opposed to how I insist that they learn. Um, the other thing about it is that, and this was something else that had been bugging me for years, when you're in a live face-to-face -face situation, it's enormously difficult with 120, 130 students to know whether you're pitching it right. So when are you telling them too much? things they already know and when are you telling them something that's brand new and they're struggling to get their heads around it and you have so many different varieties of student with varieties of knowledge in the room it's virtually impossible to kind of pitch somewhere in the middle that's satisfying to everybody 
with this new system, I can say, for instance, something like uh, the phone hacking scandal which I made reference to in one of my online lectures. Now, there might be a lot of students in the room who know something about it, who know what that means when I say that. There will be students who know absolutely nothing about it, who are maybe not even from Britain, weren't living here at the time that it happened, and therefore it's meaningless when I say phone hacking scandal. And then other students who will be extremely clued up, who know exactly what I mean, and who already have a good baseline of knowledge. So with the new online system, I can just type in if you feel you would like to know more about phone hacking, click here. And I can just put a link into something that will take them to a good, reliable source that will explain what the phone hacking scandal was and give them all the information that they need to know. So they are actually then, as an individual, deciding, do I already know enough about phone hacking? Oh, gosh, I've never heard of phone hacking. I better find out what that is. Oh, yeah, that, that vaguely rings a bell, but I'm not 100% sure. And maybe I, I need to find out. Oh, yeah, phone hacking. I know exactly what that is. So you're covering all the bases easily, quickly, and simply at once. And for me, that's that's a tremendous advantage um, in terms of education. I no longer have to guess what they know about a particular subject. I no longer have to bore the more switched on and the more clued up students. And I longer, no longer have to mystify people who've never heard of this. So that to me is a tremendous advantage. So the, this asynchronous system does put some responsibility, obviously, on the individual students because I can't check up how much or how little time they've spent with this. Um, each section of the lecture is broken down into about four or five sections and each section has a kind of predicted time, the average time it might take them to read through and watch everything. But that's just, you know, that's just a kind of guess. Um, so to me, it kind of transfers the power away from me and more towards the student and hopefully it provides them for a more personalized, individual, and hopefully more satisfying experience. God, it's making me feel old if some students can't remember the phone hacking scandal. Some of them are too young. Oh. You, know, you forget how long ago these things happened. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, to me, that, that's a, a huge step forward in this kind of system, is that you, you don't have to assume anything anymore. You can give them as much information about something as they might need and let them decide how much they want to know or need to know about it. So for many students, well, for, for particularly the first years, this is the first time they're encountering mm. you as a lecturer. Yeah. How do you keep that sort of per personal approach, even though it's online? Uh, well, we have the seminars, which are synchronous. So those are live. I'm in the live situation with about, 15 students um, in the virtual classroom, which is also another part of Blackboard. Um, so that's, I guess, where you can be more personal. They can see my face. They can hear my voice. I can literally pop the lecture material up on the screen and take them through it, which I did at the first lesson, just to kind of give them some guidance as why to why I put it together this way and how I would like them or envisage them to interact with it. Um, uh, we can use things like chat functions there, uh, which a lot of them seem to use very enthusiastically. Obviously, they can speak uh, <clears throat> to me and to other students. We can use things like breakout rooms and whiteboards. So that is kind of replicating to a large extent a face-to-face -face situation. And that's a more personal time. That's a time when they can ask questions about the lecture. They can follow up on the activities that are embedded in the lecture. They can spend a bit of social time with each other in a virtual space. So I think the, the feeling of the two is probably quite different, the two experiences. Certainly it is for me. 
Uh, and what's the reaction been from the students, this sort of new online learning? Um, most of them are very open to it. Obviously, we're only in week two, so it's early days yet. Um, just looking at the levels of engagement, because the other strength of this system is it allows us to see when students go online and uh, we can track. Levels of engagement are massive with the lectures. Um, so I can see at a glance when they've last logged in and things like that. And pretty much everybody in the whole class of second years, 120, 130, however many there are, has um, logged in and looked at the lecture material. And I don't think that would necessarily happen in the face-to-face -face situation. So we're able to see now and we can identify anybody who might be in trouble or struggling or who started to drift away. And I think, again, that's going to be much more helpful for um, picking up anybody who might be struggling in the early weeks. So uh, initially, they, they seem very positive about it. Um, they've been using the chat function during the seminars much more than I thought. And that's kind of interesting for me. I thought they would engage um, with their voices, as it were, much more. But they seem to really enjoy the chat function. And I guess that kind of fits in with, you know, using WhatsApp and stuff like that, that they're already quite used to. Uh, and it's also helpful if they feel they have a dodgy connection and maybe their voice might break up or it might not be as clear as they would want it to be. Do you think that um, lecturing has now changed and will change um, because of the COVID um, pandemic? Do you think these elements are going to be brought after the pandemic? Yeah. God, I hope so. <laughs> um, I, I really, this has kind of, you know, really re-engaged me really with my teaching. It's made me realize that the way I've always done it hasn't necessarily been the best way. I am pretty determined that I'm not going to go back to death by PowerPoint at all if I can avoid it. I'm going to try and focus much more on face-to-face -face small group teaching, um, hopefully. Um, and that is where, for me, the kind of the, the education really happens, the pedagogy really happens. And I think, you know, this is probably, you know, because of my discipline. My discipline, as you know, tends to be fairly information heavy, things to think about. Um, it's not very black and white. It's very um, much based on information and ideas and thinking about things and why are things this way and how could we do them other ways. Um, so I'm hoping that I'll be able to refocus the face-to-face -face teaching when we go back to it into much small group activity so we can work on the big themes and the big ideas from the lectures, but we can work on them in a much more focused and a much more human level. It's much more human when you're in a small group of students. You've got at least some kind of capacity to remember names, to get to know them, to develop relationships with them, which is virtually impossible in a very large lecture. So I'm hoping the large lecture is pretty much dead in the water. Certainly, it's interesting, the new vice chancellor of the University of Leeds, I was reading the other day, said exactly the same thing. For some subjects, for some disciplines, the face-to-face -face lecture is dead. So I'm hoping that idea kind of takes hold and that people don't just fall back into the old ways of doing things when the real world comes back as it must. What lessons have you learned over the last, I'll say that this is week two of teaching, but this has yeah. been a, a summer long preparation. What have you learned? Yeah. Um, I've learned that it's very easy for someone like me who's been teaching a long time to do things the way they've always done it and to not question that. And it's made me realize that the technology now exists for me to not have to do things in that way. Um, and that there are solutions to this idea of feeling, oh God, do I really have to stand in front of people and just talk off a PowerPoint for two hours? That is not, to my mind, the best way to teach people. It's not the best way to learn. There are better ways. And I think that's been a huge benefit of 
this kind of time. And it's, you know, doing new things stimulates you, it re-engages you, it excites you. And it's sometimes quite difficult, perhaps, to be excited by teaching when you've been doing it for perhaps 30 years, as I have. Um, but something like this comes along and then you realize, actually, I do have options. I have way more options for delivering this kind of information-heavy content in a way that is richer and more engaging and hopefully demonstrates to students that face-to-face isn't always better. Let's briefly talk about value for money. Are students getting value for money by having their lectures online? You know, we've heard quite a lot, particularly from students who've been uh, kind of trapped in their accommodation um, in a certain Manchester university, which I won't name, um, uh, because of the virus, and have been questioning, you know, why, why am I paying all this money for, for online lectures? The assumption seems to be that online is worth less. And I'm hoping that now that more students are experiencing online, that they will come to see this whole debate in a very different way. Um, the whole value for money agenda is obviously quite controversial within higher education, but it's something that we need to make a case for. And, and I would hope that when students see how online teaching can work, they will realize that the power that it gives them is giving them the power to determine how to get value for money. And they're not just expecting the individual lecturers or the institutions to provide the value for money and to provide that argument themselves, that this power actually lies with individual students. And I'm really hoping that they will realize that as a result of this experience. I mean, it's been the change over the last 10 years where universities become a commodity rather than uh, an education. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's no kind of avoiding that. There's no getting away from that. We are in this situation and we have been, as you say, for quite a long time. But I think it's maybe time to reassess and reevaluate what we mean by value for money now in higher education and how the online environment can be much more empowering for students to determine what they want, when they want it, when they want to access it, and the kind of learning environment that they can inhabit and that they can access, and that they now have some power to determine this. They have been given this opportunity, and I'm, I'm hoping that they will use it. It's a testing time for every industry, every educational Mm. um, institute. What support do universities need to continue to thrive, to to even survive? Uh, A lot. You know, we've been asking for government support and to be honest, it hasn't really been forthcoming. So the government seem to kind of have, have pretty much cut us adrift in terms of making this pivot, this transition to online learning. And actually, I think it's remarkable how well most institutions seem to have done um, with very little, if any, support from the government. And I think universities need to stop kind of fighting with each other and actually learn to come together, Russell Group and Universities UK, because we're all we're all in the same situation uniquely. Um, and it would be nice. I would like to see those two groups kind of blending together and collaborating more and speaking more with one voice. And I think the, the kind of division of the sector into these two bodies hasn't really helped us. So I'm hoping that somebody somewhere might actually take steps in the future to encourage the whole sectors to speak together with one voice um, towards the government on this and all of the other issues that we face. Are you hopeful for the uh, future of universities? Generally, yes. I mean, I think our university sector is a lot more vibrant and a lot more flexible and adaptable than perhaps 
people, certainly in government, had realised. I would like to see the government genuinely valuing us more and being a lot more positive instead of just throwing initiatives at us all the time and expecting us to um, not protest at any of this. Yeah, I, th- I think we, we're, I'm optimistic for its survival. I think we have proved that we can adapt very quickly and with great inventiveness to a very testing situation. But it would be really nice if the government held us in higher regard. I think that would help everybody. Dr. Carol O'Reilly, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr. Carol O'Reilly from the University of Salford talking to me about her embracing of the new way of lecturing and what support universities need. Thanks, Dan. Now, this October, to mark Black History Month, we have launched a new short-form audio series, Black Lives, Past, Present and Future. Across the month, we want to collect a series of audio clips from different black voices, whether that's from public figures, campaigners, educators, colleagues, family or friends. Here's what you can expect from the new podcast. During Black History Month this October, we want to look forward as well as looking back. You will be hearing voices that describe black lives in the past, the present and the future. What is the importance of remembering black history? What challenges and successes face the community today? And what hopes are there for the future? Join us as we hear the interesting and thought-provoking conversations about black life in the UK. We celebrate black history and culture, as well as having an honest and at times blunt conversation about race. You can listen to all perspectives in the Black Lives Past, Present and Future podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. But for exclusive interactive content, download the Entail app for iOS and Android. Black Lives, Past, Present and Future. If you want to get involved, you can read more information at laudable.substack.com. Find out how you can get involved and submit your own clips to the project. But basically all we need is a short five-minute clip recorded on a voice memos app on your phone. And you can send it across to laudable at reachplc.com. That's laudable at reachplc.com. And that's all we've got time for today on the Alone Together podcast. Uh, Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. So stay safe, stay positive, stay informed and stay tuned. This has been a laudable production from the newsrooms of Birmingham Live, the Edinburgh Evening News and the Manchester Evening News. You can download Alone Together wherever you listen to your podcasts, but for exclusive, interactive and immersive content, download the Entail app for iOS and Android. See you next time.